1: And $30 off your first box when you go to WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. That's WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. Or you can use promo code Pantsuit at checkout. Mitch McConnell finally let people read his health care bill. We break down
0: our thoughts on the future of health insurance and health care. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Today, we're here discussing the Better Care Reconciliation Act and the suit and, and the pearls. We'll talk about the gentrification of gay neighborhoods and Pride Month, along with the White House's shift in approach toward Africa and the heels. As always, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside politics. Beth, before we do our pitch for Patreon, you, you're back
0: to Beth from the right question mark. I've been peer, peer pressured by our husbands. Mm-hmm. Neither of our back. husbands supported the change. I need everyone's help because here's where I am. I'm very uncomfortable with identifying as being from the right because I am so at odds with where the Republican Party and particularly the Trump administration seem to be. I also understand the point that our husbands are making and mine very forcefully that my (laughs) views are right of center views and that I shouldn't just accept that the right has become a disaster. I should show what the right could be. So I'm like, I'm struggling. If you have a better idea for an intro for us, we are all ears. Because we tried conservative and liberal. and We didn't like that either. It's too clunky. No, it's very clunky. And they hated the used to be a Republican thing. I don't think from the center is exactly accurate, although I would be very comfortable with that. So anyway, well, we're open to your thoughts. We are also open to your support
1: everybody. We're like $700 short of our goal on Patreon and we're really trying to get there. It helps put uh Pansu Politics in the black. And if we make it to $3,000, we're going to do a special series where we answer the New York a New York Times articles uh questions based on a it was a Harvard class I think about how to live your best life. So it's going to be uh, if you like the episodes where Beth and Sarah get real philosophical and vulnerable, then you'll like those. So we got to hit that $3,000 goal first. So there's support levels all the way from a dollar a month, all the way up to $100 a month. So whatever you can give, there's lots of extra bonus content you open up at each level of support. So check it out. Patreon.com forward slash pantsuit.
0: It's been really cool to watch Pride Month this year and see how more and more people are embracing it and all the activities going on. And this is one place where I really do sort of appreciate the social media embrace of something. Often I get kind of annoyed at, like, the way we put a filter on our profiles and think that we've done something. But I I kind of get that more with Pride Month. I... Feel like I am a failure
1: as a human being because I've never been to a pride parade. I want to go so bad. It's just like never worked out. It's not like I'm like opposed to taking my kids. I'm super into it. I don't know. It's maybe because I don't live in like a big city where it's easy to get to one. So it's really going to take some planning. But that is on my list for next year. Next year, Sarah, y'all hold me accountable. Next year, Sarah is going to a pride parade. It's happening.
0: There was an article this morning in the New York Times. I think it was this morning about gay neighborhoods and how. Because there are gayborhoods, is, as you will, gayborhoods, as you will, because the LGBT community is becoming um so much more embraced broadly. There have been some unexpected consequences of that. And one of them has been and this was kind of painful to think about so recently in our history. LGBT people had to sort of flock to safe neighborhoods, and they created those neighborhoods and made them awesome. And now everyone wants to live in them. And it's sort of changing the character of those neighborhoods. And so we'll put the link to this article in our show notes. But I thought it was so fascinating to read about the history of those neighborhoods and the evolution of them over time, and sort of the economic impacts of especially Single men, single heterosexual men who are very wealthy, moving into those neighborhoods and sort of driving up the property values to a point where people who helped create those neighborhoods are now feeling ex- excluded from them. So it's just a really interesting read. Well,
1: I think it's the history. Like I've read some history of the Castro neighborhood in San Francisco, and I think Sa- I think what I read is San Francisco sort of turned into a safe space in a neighborhood, if you will, because they were, if you were caught being gay on a Navy ship, that's where they put you off. Like if you were caught in the military, then that's where they kicked you out of the military. And they just <laughs> dropped you in San Francisco. And so this neighborhood um, sprung up. And so I always thought that was really, really fascinating about how the different histories of these neighborhoods popped up. And also uh, there's a really good quote where he was basically like, you know, everybody in the neighborhood was basically a walking felon because that everything we were doing was illegal. And so we sort of protected ourselves and formed these tribes in these neighborhoods. And there were people, there was that one artist in particular who was doing sort of like protest arts and protest murals in Seattle about the gentrification of the neighborhood. And look, gentrification happens to lots of people, not just gay people. And I think that, um, it's a problem with big, the big cities right now, period. You know, if there is no, and I'm not saying that gay people are only, uh, only source of culture. I'm just saying they're usually the best source of culture and, or one of the best source of culture. And so, like, if that, you know, if that leaves, and I think that you've, you know, you can make very similar, arguments about Black neighborhoods like H Street in Washington, D.C. Like if if these very distinct neighborhoods that provide so much of the culture and the texture and the, you know, the best parts of living in a city and it's just an expensive place to live where a bunch of rich people live, which, you know, is not very far off in places like San Francisco and New York City. Like, what's the point? You know, like, why why do you want to be there? Like, if it doesn't offer something beyond Whole Foods and expensive real estate. So uh, I thought it was really interesting. It was an interesting illustration and fascinating history of something that's happening to lots of groups, not just gay um, neighborhoods. But I thought it
0: was I think it is indicative of, of a lot of problems in cities right now. I agree. When I was going through Leadership Northern Kentucky, which I've talked about on the show before, and it was an experience that I loved, we would talk a whole lot about economic development. And it felt for a while, like at every session, it would sort of be like, look at this amazing stuff that's being done to these historic buildings. We'll talk about gentrification later. Mm. And it's hard. It's a really hard topic. And we did try to confront it a couple of times. But I think it's something that everyone is still trying to figure out. Another point that this gentrification of gayborhoods brought up is that by having so many LGBT people concentrated in certain areas, you were able to mobilize a lot more quickly. Mm. And you could get real activists elected. And there was this question throughout the story of what's the strategy now You know, now that this is changing, what's the strategy look like? And I, you know, I would love to talk to some of our listeners about that. Well, and here's the other thing, too. Like, you know,
1: and I remember this in D.C. because there was still a lot of racial gentrification and neighborhoods and economic gentrification. Like when we lived there and it was very sort of, you know, you'd go one block and it was you could see the beginnings. and You go next block and it was it was less. Some of the buildings were more run down and the, 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 what you sort of heard is like, you kind of, you wanted to follow. And it's, I mean, so I don't think this is a new thing because I remember hearing this in DC. You wanted to follow sort of the gays as they walk through the, they like as they work their way through the neighborhoods because they sort of were like the first wave and then everybody else would follow them into these neighborhoods. And so I think they're like, I don't think this is anything new by any stretch of the imagination, but um, gentrification is hard. I do remember one time reading an interesting article that said it's almost like there's just at the beginning of the wave, like it's really good for the people in the neighborhood. If they can sustain, um, if they can keep their place, like there's more jobs available, there's more economic opportunity. It's just when the real estate cost, you start to, you know, skyrocket. And in San Francisco in particular, they're kicking people out. It's not just you can't afford it. It's, oh, no, we've sold the building. You've got to go. Because there's like a lot of legislative rent protections, I think, in, in San Francisco. But like they use all these other machinations uh, to like sell the building and kick the people out. And so, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated problem. And I, I think it's, like I said, I think it's indicative of something much bigger happening in big cities across the United States.
0: And the people who have good ideas about affordable housing are going to be the heroes of our generation. My friend Kim is the executive director for the emergency shelter in northern Kentucky, and she shared with me this website where you can go through and look at different cities and see what you need to earn per hour to be able to afford an apartment in those cities. I want to go to that. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes, too. It's really fascinating and also scary when you realize how mismatched wages and housing are in, in so many cities. Before we leave the topic of pride, I wanted to talk about an email that I got from Corey, who was surprised that I was surprised that Karen Handel had been so outspoken in opposition to adoption by gay families. And he said, I'm just, I don't really get how that's surprising to you. And he said, you know, my husband and I experience all kinds of discrimination and it's just not uncommon. And it, it I was surprised that you took that as in such a shocking way. And I think that that was really fair and also indicative of how we do live in these little bubbles because And I think I project from my bubble, Cincinnati has always been known as a very conservative city. Northern Kentucky is about the reddest spot on the map when you look at Kentucky. But in my world in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky, I see Cincinnati as a hugely progressive city on gay rights and transgender rights in Northern Kentucky there is no discussion that I'm part of that is discriminatory in any way. And our suburbs are filled with gay couples with children. Um, my church it displayed a pride flag today with this, you know, with love is inclusive on top of it. And there's a pride um faith formation group at my church that meets regularly. I just don't. It just seems to me like it's an issue that we've moved beyond. And I take um, his point that we have not. So I appreciated that feedback and I hope that, I hope that my experience becomes more the norm, you know, because it is, it, it does feel here like what we're learning more about is how to talk about transgender issues. Yeah. But, but we are at the love is love is love place. Um, also on the affordable
1: housing note, I have the solution. Y'all should move to Paducah. I mean, I guess not everybody, because then if housing won't be
0: affordable, but
1: (laughs) I just think that part of the solution is everybody doesn't have to live in San Francisco and New York. Just throwing that out there as an idea.
0: Well, let's change directions in a major way and talk about Africa for a second. I spent a lot of time with the New York times as I was preparing for this episode, which is why we're a little heavy on New York times journalism today but there is reporting about the Trump administration's proposed Pentagon budget for the 2018 fiscal year that adds $52 billion to military affairs spending in Africa while reducing humanitarian and development assistance across Africa. They've proposed slashing programs that buy drugs for people infected with HIV, And are moving away from development assistance programs. And so it's just, it's kind of like, what, what's the plan here? I don't understand.
1: I don't understand why we want to ratchet up these sort of intervention, military intervention problems that we have in the Middle East and just like,
0: let's add a new space to do all this in. I would be less confused if the approach was, we're taking everything out of Africa, right? Our military's yeah. coming home. We're not doing this nation building anymore. We're done. I don't think that's a very healthy or long-term sustainable approach, but I would get it more than I get, let's beef up our military presence and pull back our humanitarian presence.
1: Well, and let me, let me try to be nuanced here. I do understand that a huge source of refugees and displacement and issues are in Africa. I mean, I think that I was looking at a vice, vice did a really good sort of like infographic about the refugee crisis. And the four biggest sources were Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan, South Sudan, and Somalia. So, you know, I think pretending that there aren't, there isn't, you know, huge areas of that continent that are destabilized and contributing to destabilization all over the world is silly. Yeah, I know that's a huge issue. I just don't understand how military intervention
0: is going to help that. An interesting quote from the article, um, it was they talked about the difference between the Trump administration in terms of Rex Tillerson and the handful of folks at the State Department with him. Um having this re they're kind of reinforcing the fact that diplomacy is not important to Donald Trump. Rex Tillerson backed out of a meeting with the chairman of the African union that did not go well. Um, but on the other side, general Mattis and others have have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about and traveling to Africa and they pulled out a quote from general Mattis in 2013 When he said, if you don't fully fund the State Department, I need to buy more ammunition, just this recognition that these diplomatic efforts, as frustrating as they may sound to the United States, you know, I've heard many people say, like, we're not taking care of people at home, but we're taking care of people overseas. I get it. But we kind of are taking care of people at home by taking care of people overseas. Mm. And we are taking care of our men and women in uniform who we ask to go there. I would much rather ask our military members to go over and show people how to farm in new ways than ask them to be in the battlefield. So it's a it's kind of a scary proposition, especially if it is revealing of a philosophy, which I guess remains to be seen.
1: Well, and the State Department isn't not only is it not fully funded, it's not fully staffed either. So there was a really good article, I think, in the Washington Post about this guy that said, like, basically, this is why I'm resigning from the Foreign Service after 27 years. And it's just it's really bad. And people don't feel like there is a cohesive strategy. And the strategy they do feel is in place is very, very
0: damaging. So I don't know. Yeah, apparently, the apparently the position at the State Department that is Um, that has the most responsibility for Africa has not been filled. The other um, quote that I wanted to pull out of this article is from Alexander Lascaris, who is a State Department official with African Command. And he says, how do we operate in an environment when we are willing to send peacekeepers, but we're not willing to take the steps necessary to make peace?
1: Mm, I think that's that's a great quote. I mean, disturbing and sad,
0: but good. Do you have a compliment for the other side? I do. I have so many friends
1: right now who are saying they're going to vote against the health care. So who do I have right now as we record Sunday night? I believe I have Cruz.
0: Who else? Cruz, Ron Paul, Ron, uh, Rand Paul, Paul. Was he said that? I didn't know
1: if he was for sure on the list.
0: Well, so there's this group of four that got together. Cruz, Rand Paul, Ron Johnson, and someone else whose name is escaping me right now.
1: And it's like not even Collins or Murkowski.
0: Right. And then you've got Collins and Murkowski out there. You have Heller out there. You have Ben Sass who this weekend. Heller, that's a Heller. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a, there's a crew Yeah, I think that's so they're all them, them, all them, all the, all those people. (laughs) I wanted to compliment Tim Kaine and Tom Carper, who have been thinking about what they would be willing to do if we were having a bipartisan conversation about how to fix the Affordable Care Act. And I really appreciate how they've been very specific in articulating concerns about the Affordable Care Act and actually starting to talk about tangible steps that they would be in support of to move on it. And I think that shows an intention to legislate instead of just go back and forth with hyper-partisanship. So hats off Tim King and Tom Carper.
1: On the hyper-partisanship, I posted this on Twitter. I was reading about Illinois. I'm going to take us on a tangent here before we move on to healthcare. I was reading about Illinois' uh Downgrade. I think they've been downgraded to junk status, which is that's
0: frightening. That's a whole episode, right?
1: And I was thinking about how Barack Obama talks about how Illinois he thought Illinois, running for Senate in Illinois was such a good preparation to run for president because it is so uh, representative uh, demographically of the United States as a whole because you have Southern Illinois and then you have Chicago, and you have urban areas and all this stuff. And I thought and basically part of Illinois problems is that they just cannot agree on a budget. Like they're just partisanship. They're just going to ride this partisan train straight off a cliff. And I thought, Oh God, I hope this is not a harbinger of things to come for the United States where our partisanship just it knows neither side will blink. And so our, and I'm particularly thinking about the debt ceiling, like if neither side will blink and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Sorry. I'm, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer. That's just what I was thinking about. <laughs> And I need to get it off my chest. And that's what I do. I talk about it here so I feel better.
0: Well, let's talk about health care and see if that makes us feel better.
1: <laughs> Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
0: If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray.
1: com/pansy.
0: So Mitch McConnell finally told us what's in his health insurance bill. Yeah, I kind of realized after we recorded the briefcase
1: and I was like so mad at the Johns that like it wasn't even the Johns anymore. It was literally like Mitch McConnell and his legislative aide writing the future of healthcare for the United States, which seems super
0: democratic to me. The whole process is super democratic, right? He wants to have a vote on it. In advance of the July 4th recess, which gives very little time for discussion, no real hearings or committee processes. They're saying it's an open amendment process, but McConnell does have the ability to pretty significantly influence what amendments come to the floor and which don't. Can I just start with a really lame point about all of this? I know there's a lot to say. But I'm really frustrated that we're not having more of a conversation about how reconciliation is an improper way to bring Mm -hmm. this to the floor. I think there is way too much in this bill to say that they're just making adjustments to the budget and and they're doing it so that they only need a simple majority to pass it instead of a 60 vote majority. But this is why you're supposed to have 60 votes because it's too important to have done on a simple majority basis. Well,
1: I mean, in fairness, on the time, the shortened time situation, I did read that Obamacare was like clocking in over 2,700 pages, but this is
0: only like 147. So you probably could read it by then. So there is that. I love how someone, I think it was John Cornyn, maybe rolled that out like, well, this solves everything. It's shorter. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, no, no, this is a bad thing. It's bad. It's shorter. That doesn't mean it's better cuz it's shorter. And I think that means it's bad.
0: So what are your top bullet points about this legislation that you think are problematic? Oof.
1: Um as a Kentuckian, I have grave concerns about the Medicaid rollback. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care that you're going to, you know, plump a little bit money into it to to, you know, soften the fall. I think that is so dangerous for people who really need who needed that expansion, who got health care for the first time under that expansion. And not even that. I mean, these cuts are going to hurt people that aren't new to Medicaid, people in nursing homes, disabled children, disabled adults, that the Medicaid part really, really upsets me.
0: And that's fundamentally what this is. Ben Sass said this over the weekend that this isn't really a health care bill. It's a Medicaid reform bill. Mm hmm. And it's being talked about like a healthcare bill. And the problem with trying to do Medicaid reform without doing transformative work on the healthcare system is exactly what you described. Right. You know, it's, it's not that Medicaid doesn't need some attention at some point. It's that you can't, it's kind of like they're taking the board as it's set and just kind of moving some pieces around. And I don't think you can do that. I think you have to start with a new board. What I've realized as I've been reading about it and comparing it to the AHCA and the Affordable Care Act is that I really think they should not have started with health care as a legislative priority.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But they've been crowing about repealing Obamacare for a cabillion years. And they're not doing that, right? This is not a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. There are provisions that are changed. But it is not a repeal, and it is certainly not a replacement. There is nothing transformative. Our listener, Debbie, sent me a message saying, this is window dressing. And I think she's absolutely right. And I think that's why the president changes his temperature on it every five minutes, because there isn't a lot substantively to either rally around or take a swing at if you just want something to get done, which is where the president seems to be. Well, and I think that the really important
1: part, particularly about the Medicaid point, is that it's Medicaid reform. I think it's almost like tax cuts for the wealthy that and we're going to get a little bit of Medicaid reform as a bonus. I mean, like just the the motivating factor seems to be to get rid of the taxes on people at the upper income that were paying for a lot of the subsidies under Obamacare. and. I mean, these are
0: big tax cuts. They're big tax cuts. And that's the thing. What's what's the overall vision for America? You know, as I started thinking about what would I do here if I were just sitting down with a white sheet of paper and a pen and it would not be starting with health care because it's the most difficult issue by far. And you really do need to think about people's incomes generally before you start thinking about how you want to deal with health insurance and you need to think about people's health generally before you start thinking about health care and as we've talked about before those are not the same right how you they're related tightly related but how you fund health care is different from the care itself and the cost of the care itself so i wish that they had started with infrastructure or with tax reform, because I think those are issues that you could get to. Are we going to create more jobs with better wages? Are we going to invest in our country in a way? I actually think that the way to get more corporate investment in the United States is not through corporate tax cuts, but is through infrastructure investment. Mm. So that's where I wish they had started. Well, and I think that there seems to, again,
1: be this really unpleasant narrative coming from the Trump administration about Mike Pence tweeted that the new healthcare will have more personal responsibility. Kelly and Conway has gone on and talking about like, well, people just need to find jobs. This idea that people who don't have insurance or people on Medicaid are there because they have made mistakes. They don't take care of themselves or they're just waiting for the government to take care of them is so gross and disturbing. Please, please stop doing this. Look, no one is saying that people don't make choices that harm their health. Obviously that is the case, but I really don't even like, again, saying people make choices because I think that is incredibly simplistic when you're talking about what happens in a human mind when it does, decides to drink or smoke or or eat anything, or, I mean, it's just, it's so complicated to, to, to use the terms personal responsibility is reductive and it doesn't, it's not nuanced and it sure doesn't push the conversation forward, which we really
0: need to do. Well, as you pointed out on the last episode, when we talked about this, the smoking, drinking, et cetera, isn't even the driver of our healthcare cost we're spending the bulk of our money on end of life care. And until we get real about that, we're not going to have a conversation about what's next.
1: Did you read the Vox article I sent you about the, um, idea for actually getting insurance for everybody? I believe it was based on a, um, It was a legislation by Representative Pete Stark, who's a Democrat out of California from 2006, and it was called AmeriCare Health Care Act. Did you read it? I thought it was really interesting. I
0: did read it. I thought it was interesting, too. Um, It basically advocated for moving toward a single-payer option that would then swallow the rest of the market, because the idea is that it would create this market, and then you would give employers the opportunity to buy into it. And because it would be more efficient and cheaper, employers would take that option. And so you would basically just destroy the competitive market in favor of this single-payer option.
1: And like every child, like once you passed it, every child that was born would automatically be put on AmeriCare. So you would kind of transition them in slowly. And there, what I really liked about it is – there were there was lots of co- there was still cost sharing, but it was limited for low income families. So people still had skin in the game when they were making healthcare decision, which is a big beef I have, not just with Medicaid, but particularly with Medicare. Yeah, I'm looking at you guys like that is a problem. And so um, I think that that would be really
0: helpful too. Can we talk about skin in the game for a second? Got to have
1: skin in the game.
0: I think this is a place where conservatives use this as a talking point badly because i think when republicans talk about having skin in the game it it has the sound of these lazy people don't contribute to anything and i think the meaningful aspect of skin in the game that is that is good for all of us is to stop substituting What does my insurance cover for actual informed consent to medical treatment Mm -hmm. and informed consent about both the procedure or the pill and what it costs? And we have lost that. Understandably so. That is, I do not make that statement in judgment. We are a culture. All of these things are cultural, right? What we spend on end of life care is cultural. Mm hmm. So I say that with no judgment, but I have personally benefited from going on a high deductible plan and thinking through every single medical expenditure that we make. Now, I understand that I have tons and tons of privilege around me as I go through that exercise. So where that can be an interesting intellectual exercise for me, it would be very painful and scary for someone else. So, so look, I get that HSA is for everyone, not the answer. But there is something really important, not financially, but psychologically, about understanding why you're making the healthcare decisions that you're making.
1: Well, I think there's two things here. I have like four things. Who am I kidding? Okay, first of all, with Medicare. There needs to be skin in the game because you have hospitals that, like, this is a thing that happened. I remember this, school got, this hospital got in big trouble. They were like, tracky, like, oh, a Medicare patient gets in. Let's say how many tests we can put them under. So, because it rate, because they're going to get approved and they raise the cost and they might not get reimbursed at huge rates for Medicare or Medicaid, but that, you know, you can still rank them up and people are like, well, am I Medicare? So sure, why not go for it? So I think that Medicare. Yes, I know you pay into it, yet, you know, I get that there's some issues here, but I still think that there should be something. It shouldn't just be, and I'm a Democrat here, I'm all for, like, I could go for single payer, but there should be something that you pay so that you understand the impact of the decisions you're making. And so you're not just, because we already think in this country that more more medical care is better medical care, and it isn't. So it's not just, like you said, it's not psychological. It's not just empowering. It's not just about lowering the cost. It's that. Sometimes the treatment is the you know, is better. It's what's this expression? The treatment is worse than the cure, or the treatment is whatever. Like it's you're gonna get sicker. You know, you are get people treated for prostate cancer and breast cancer that they didn't need to be treated for, and the treatment is worse than that. So, and then the worse than the disease. So, I think that's one thing. I think with regards to the um, the issue of like your care being better, that's definitely true. I think that I, I can cite one instance in particular that had I just done everything the doctors told me to and had insurance that was going to pay for everything and just gone for it, I most certainly would have had my gallbladder taken out. Instead, I was like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to see who who I can get this gallbladder screening with cheaper. And then the symptoms went away and I figured out what it was. I'm sure if I'd actually gotten the screening, they would have been like, oh yeah, there's some sludge in your gallbladder. Let's take it out. Luckily, I would have been like, hell no, because I don't do surgery almost under any circumstances. But that definitely, because I had a high deductible plan, I looked into it and I didn't do it. So I think that, but to your point about like, the the privilege and the resources. So here's two things. Either, like, you need to give me the information and the data available to price shop, which should not be hard. You know, I use Amazon Prime every day. Clearly, this technology is out there for you to price check. Tell me which who does the cheapest ultrasound in town, and I can go check with them. Because I don't think it has to be privilege. I mean, it could be an app. And I think there are some apps that do this. Like I don't, you know, most everybody has a cell phone and has access to the internet. And so I think that the idea that we could, that data is out there, it should be made available. If you're going to try to gouge me, then you need to, and put me in a marketplace, then I want to have access to that information. So, so I can really act like a consume informed consumer in the marketplace. Or this is my preference. Because I don't like the fact that you can gouge me. That bugs me because it's medical care. And when I'm in an ambulance, I can't be like, hey, you know what? Which emergency room is going to cost me less? Because healthcare is very different than buying something on Amazon Prime. I'm not buying a broom. I am making scary, scary decisions about my health. I prefer like it just all be set. And I don't have to worry about who's charging me more because everybody's legally required to charge me the same. So I think either it's, you know, you can't have it both ways. Like if it's going to be a marketplace, then I need all the information to, to act as an f- informed consumer in the marketplace. And I shouldn't have to hunt for it. That's where the privilege and the resources comes in is they hide it from you. They're hiding the ball. Well, they or, do. I
0: mean, most people can't explain the terms of their insurance. Right. It's it's vastly complex. You start talking about embedded versus non-embedded deductibles. You know, this is a world that most people can't access. And that's well, and ridiculous it's the- when it's a thing we all need.
1: It's not just the insurance. It's like, how are they going to, co- how are they going to, what code are they going to use? You know, you might think you're looking at the same procedure and you're asking about the procedure and they're telling you how much the procedure costs. But then the the person who codes the bill is going to say, oh, it was actually a procedure with this little different number. And then all of a sudden it costs 10 times as much. You know what I mean? Like the coding is so much so important to the cost of your actual health care so I mean that it, that's like a whole nother hidden layer that most people don't understand, and it's bananas. It's not even just the insurance side; it's the how the healthcare and providers themselves are billing, and then you have the hospital, and then you have the doctor, and then you have the lab. It's like, come on! It is such a labyrinth.
0: My husband, there is no amount of money too small for him not to argue about because of like the principle it. of things. And he has spent so many hours of our lives over a $25 fee that he was charged in connection with his physical that was supposed to be covered at a hundred percent because it's a wellness physical and they coded something and we paid the $25 and he is furious. And he's just like, listen, it's a principle. And he was like, the thing is- I support you, Chad. I support you. (laughs) They expect you not to call and it makes me mad. He was like, I'm going to call because it's wrong. And and so I get all of that. And let me tell you, too, if I am retired and this is still
1: the debacle that it currently is, I am totally going to go become those people who like have you you know, there's like people out there that if you have some bill from hell, like they go through the bill, they fight the bill, they do it all pro bono. They like they fight the bill, they go through every code, they challenge the codes like I read stories about those people and I'm like, oh,
0: that would be the most fulfilling work on the planet. You know what I think would be the most fulfilling work on the planet that I wish I had the skills to do? I wish that I could help a person who has to see 15 different specialists mm-hmm. put all that information together. Mm-hmm. I've talked you to do. my mom about this. You You just need to be this. a
1: primary care physician. That's just people need to... Again, not to just be a Tulgawande groupie every episode when we talk about healthcare, but he did a, such that that awesome article about incremental care. Like it's about somebody that can do all that for you and is not just coming in and trying to save the day, but sees the whole picture.
0: And and how can you get some plans that value primary care physicians appropriately? You know, mm-hmm. and that's why this is my. So I do not approach this issue as an ideological purist. I read this kind of Chris Hayes tweet storm and then somebody else glommed onto it. And they were talking about how Republicans have a vision for healthcare that would essentially have the same result as the subprime lending market and housing. And I thought it was very fascinating. I reposted it on our page. I did not agree with it for a couple of reasons. They referred to an inelasticity of demand as a problem in market forces influencing healthcare. And I do not believe demand for healthcare is inelastic in all circumstances. I particularly think that gigantic portion of spending that we do on end of life care is not at all inelastic. That's totally cultural and something that uh-huh. could change. So, so I don't see that. And I have some disagreement about the subprime market as well, because I think that With both of these issues, I am neither completely in favor of government regulation or completely in favor of a free market. I think the right answer is somewhere in between. I do think the insurance industry needs to be regulated. I do think the pharmaceutical industry needs to be regulated and the healthcare industry needs to be Mm -hmm. regulated. And I think you've got to find a place somewhere in the middle of government takeover, which I think would be enormously problematic in total free enterprise. So my solution, I think, would be something like what you described, a run at complete transparency on the cost of services, an enormous infusion of federal dollars into the technology to make looking for health insurance much more like Amazon, where average people can understand it and understand exactly what they're getting develop some bullet points that you just know how to look for these and you, and you follow what this is and the same thing for providers i think it needs to be like looking at the calories on a menu you know mm-hmm. you can understand exactly what's happening you have to sign off in advance before a service is provided to you <laughs> this is the cost of the service and this is what we're going to do and i also think you have to couple if you're going to keep a competitive marketplace of carriers which i think is healthier than a single payer system in the, in a country like the United States, then I think you also have to look at wages. And I've thought a lot about the minimum wage. I've thought a lot about the Medicaid subsidies. I'm wondering if there's a way to, if you're going to use kind of the tax code as a way to shift wealth around in the country, what if you tied tax credits for business, instead of tying those tax credits or penalties to business based on employer-sponsored health plans, which everyone now knows I think it are a train wreck and a huge contributor to the problems that we have, what if instead you tied tax credits to some kind of percentage increase in average wages over some period of time where you're basically giving employers not a mandate but an incentive to move wages up in connection hmm. with healthcare reform.
1: That's interesting.
0: And then if you put that together with something like universal basic income, then I think you start to get a place where, yes, we're still transferring some wealth. So again, it is not ideologically pure for me as a conservative or libertarian leaning or whatever, but I think it's, I think it's necessary. I think it's morally required. For us well, to Well, and people. I want
1: to say this. Don't forget that I thought it was very interesting in Barack Obama's long Facebook message that he came out in opposition to the health care that he called it a transfer of
0: wealth to the wealthy. Right, right. And I'm not in favor of that for sure. Mm-hmm. If We're going to be transferring wealth. That's the wrong direction. So it's not ide- ideologically pure in that direction. And it's not completely a government takeover. But I think finding something in between is where we need to go. And I think you can't do that in a reconciliation bill or even just a healthcare bill. I think all these issues have to kind of fit together. So bringing us back
1: down to this sad reality we're actually faced with and not the one I wish you could create for us. Do we think... This bill is going to pass. Oh, and what did you think about Mitch McConnell having the disabled protesters removed from his office? I thought that was uh, awful.
0: I thought that was awful, too. And I think the whole approach here has been such communications malpractice. And so it's I think he just does not care what his image is at mm-hmm. all. How is that possible? I don't
1: know. It's so
0: strange. Well, but listen, I, there
1: is that interesting thing about how power chain, how power gives you brain damage. Did you read that article? We'll put that yes, in the show notes too. Yeah. And how it makes you impervious to like when you're wrong or people's perceptions of you. He's had a lot of power for a long time. Maybe that's what it is.
0: I, I, I understand the frustrations of people who hear this, like everyone's going to die and say, don't talk that way because that's not true. Because we have laws that say hospitals can't refuse people care. Okay, that's true. It's also incomplete because the the point is the condition people arrive to those hospitals in is very relevant to those outcomes. So it's not enough to say you're not going to be refused care if you desperately need it to stay alive. That's an... I, I just wish we could come out of our corners on this mm-hmm. and and start to acknowledge some of the fundamental reality here that, that we do just, we have people who are very, very sick and it's not their fault. And you know what? Even if it was their fault, they're still human beings and they're yeah, very, and what's very it, even
1: sick. If yeah, exactly. Even if they're our fault, we're just gonna be like, you're on your own. Okay. Again, though, let's deal with the reality we have. Do we think it's going to pass? I mean, I don't think it looks really good right now. He can only lose two, and he's—we're talking like five, not counting Collins or Murkowski. But I'm making a point never to underestimate Mitch McConnell. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I—I I feel like I'm getting played. I feel like all this—these people saying we're not going to do it—is some sort of master plan. I don't know because
0: they're not saying they're not going to do it. They're saying in its current form, right? So they're—they're they're sitting there. This is a straw man, and then they'll come out and say. No, wait, we found one we can all agree on. We did this amendment. We whatever. I mean, this is a real crossroads for the Senate. It's basically a test of how much people are willing to ride it out with the president or not. Right. Because the president, even though he's called it mean, has now decided that he needs this to pass. And I think I really think he just wants to be done with this. Right. And get on to something else. Well, he does get bored easy. He does. And I think he's bored with this. I think he's tired of it. I think it's harder and more detailed and wonkier than he wants anything to ever be. And so now he's using Twitter to pressure people. I am disgusted by this group that has gone full force against Heller. It's I mean, it's a Republican group. Yeah. Just running ads against him and everything awful. It's awful. But I mean, so this is the question, like, are you going to, it's a question on two fronts. I think, are you going to go all in with the president because you don't see another way? Or are you going to stay principled and risk losing your seat? And then like two a to that will Democrats and moderate Republicans show up for the people who stayed principled. Mm. It is very difficult for me to imagine that the resistance is going to help with the reelect Senator Heller campaign. Yeah. And this is the issue with our system. you right. know. And and we, we got to get right with that, too.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. And I think you're right. I don't think everybody's going to be like, OK, you give a pass. We'll keep the Republicans around because they see it as, you know, you need the votes to stop. Donald Trump. So I don't know. That's really tough. It's I really mean, tough. I do think the only thing that gives me hope is the idea that Mitch McConnell has written in his own books and said publicly that he doesn't want health. He likes healthcare being a Democratic issue. Well, if they pass this, it is no longer the Democrats' baby. It's all on you. Like you can't keep blaming it on
0: Obama. So maybe it is just a ploy, and he's going to let it die. I don't know. So I want to get your thoughts on, but before we leave this. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the reality that we're in, but a little bit. I do want to talk about end of life care because you posted the article from Atul Gwande about, what was it, like 80% of our healthcare is spent oh, yes. on 20%. I mean, it's, it follows the 80-20 rule very closely. And one of our listeners said, I would like to hear you guys talk about whether those dollars should flow to, you know, a 25-year-old with kidney failure versus a 90-year-old who um has alzheimer's. Well, and here's the other thing too, I
1: think just before I forget this point. It's not just end of life care and sort of the rationing of healthcare, but I think the other huge issue with this bill is that they promised over and over again particularly Donald Trump lower premiums and this is going to send premiums skyrocketing. It's not just about people on medicaid. You know,
0: other people's premiums are going to go so high. Yeah, I, I, I'm i interested to see the CBO score on this, too, which, you know, that's another process thing. It would be great to have that before people vote. Mm. Mm. It's going to be bad. It's going <sighs> to look like a lot of people are going to lose coverage. And that's going to be true in part because of the provisions themselves and in part because this does repeal the individual mandate. So some people are going to self-select out. They're going to decide not to have health insurance. Wow. <laughs> Well, are you going to talk we're... about, are you going to answer my question about the end of life? Thing? I really oh. want to know what you think about
1: that. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, I feel passionately that our system is broken when it comes to end of life care, not because, or not only because of the huge cost of the system, but because I think it increases people's suffering. And I think that it's not good care.
0: Was that your question? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I'm, I struggle with who, makes those decisions. But, the death panels, remember? <laughs> right. I, I do. I, find, I realize that you and I are kind of weirdos, but I think that something we have in common that influences our perspective on all of this is that we are both very comfortable with the idea that we are going to be physically uncomfortable sometimes. And maybe I have been we're gonna, thinking
1: about this so much. I'm so glad you brought this up.
0: And, and, you know, sometimes we're going to be physically uncomfortable, like, forever. And there are times when that calls for treatment and times when it doesn't. Because,
1: yeah, go ahead. America, maybe at the mic. Okay. This is something that really bothers me. Let me list you all the times this happens. Should I mention my natural births? Should I talk about the dry needling therapy that has, like, all but fixed my headaches? Should I talk about floating in a sensory deprivation tank, where there's not even pain, but it's dark and quiet. Any just hint of discomfort, much less actual physical pain. And there are a lot of people who just, it is like a big metal gate just slams down and they won't hear anything else I have to say. And it wears me Out. Like, I'm about to tell it, like, this dry needling I got, it fixed the ringing in my ears. It stopped my headaches. Like, but, oh my God, she's, it's a needle and it might hurt. And why would you do that? Like, what? Dudes, everybody, people, all the people, we gotta get over this. Life is full of discomfort. And I think the reason that the end of life care appeals to me, um, and I'm passionate about it on a deep level is because I see so many um, similarities between how we treat death and how we treat birth and the fact that we act as if these are medical conditions we have to cure and they are not, they are Mm -hmm. part of the natural cycle of life. And if we cannot treat them as that, and we cannot teach our children that that is what they are, then I think we are, you know, disconnected. And like, this is, I am, you know, these are all my personal experiences, but I said this to my husband the other day and he's like, yes, are you familiar with America's opiate addiction? Like there is clearly something big, bigger in our society and our culture in which any level of discomfort or pain or grief or sadness or transition or change like we all just shut down and we've really taken this healthcare care decision in a very deep Deep space, but
0: it's just true. And that opiate addiction is originating in physicians' offices Mm -hmm. because of this idea that we cannot be uncomfortable. My Mm -hmm. question always for healthcare providers who are about to prescribe something to me is Are you treating an issue that can get better or are you masking symptoms? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is masking symptoms, I'm not interested. I'm just Mm -hmm. not. And I think that is such an out there, hippy, dippy, weirdo view. And until that starts to kind of permeate society a little bit more, we are not going to have affordable health care. We just aren't.
1: Well, and I just think that, you know, oh, yeah, I, I don't particularly with the regards to like masking symptoms and like, what is the purpose of all this? The truth is, though. You can't make a good decision about what you want from your health care if you don't know what you want from your life. And now we're about to
0: really really profound and good stuff, Sarah.
1: Yeah. Let's just let's stay with me
0: here, America. If you (laughs) don't know
1: what kind what your values are, what your purpose is, what kind of parent you want to be what kind of life you want to live. Like these are big things, but if you don't have some place driving you towards there, if you don't have a goal in mind, then you can't make those decisions. You have no, that's why people want the doctors to make the decision for them because we don't teach each other. We don't talk about, we certainly don't tell our children, how do you make this decision? What, what are we looking at when we make this decision? Like, you know, it's not a fun thing to look at your parent and say, as I, I finally forced my mother and stepfather and grandmother the other day, I said, you need to tell me what matters. Do you want to be able to eat? Do you have to be able to walk? Do you, how do you feel about dementia? You have to tell me these things because if I don't know what you want from life, then I can't make decisions about the end of your life. And it's the same thing. I think with, birth and any in all these chronic c- conditions or terminal conditions like if you can't think through what's important to me what do i need what to be who i am not just be alive but to be who i am and that Gwande talks about this so much in his book then you can't you what's informing the decision so that's why people are like they just abdicate it and they just say oh just tell me what to do doctor or do everything you can doctor and it's no good it's not getting us any place good
0: Well, that's where we are with both birth and death, fear and avoidance. Yep. And I did not really understand until my first pregnancy that for most of my life, I did not feel my body. I was just in it. But unless something was wrong, I didn't have any relationship with it which influences everything. How do you know Mm -hmm. when you're hungry or full? How do you know when you're tired, really tired? You know, how, how do you have any sense of things? And then I think once you start to feel your body through whatever mechanism that is, it's, it's amazingly transformative. I I know now several days before I get sick that, that that I'm going to get sick. Oh yeah. You know, I just have, an understanding of the rhythms of my body in a way that I, I never would have before. And that completely changes. I don't, I almost never see a doctor because I, I have just a better sense. And again, I'm not, that doesn't make me better than anyone. Mm. I just wish that we could impart that to the next generation because then at least we will be having a different kind of conversation about healthcare and, and a different kind of conversation about death. I volunteered with hospice while I was studying for the bar exam and I sat with people who were dying so that their loved ones could go get groceries or go see a movie or have a little bit of time. And I think once you strip away all the fear from that experience, it's something totally different. It's, mm-hmm. it's an honor to be a part of that person's journey in that way.
1: Well, and also to me, you know, when it's someone you love, protecting that you can, I can't do anything. I cannot control the situation to the best of my ability or protect that person or do anything. If I don't have if I'm running from information or if I'm running from the experience, you can't simultaneously avoid and avoid a situation and control it. Like it just doesn't work that way. And so I'm not saying, and I think that that was sort of the same way with giving birth. Like I tell people like I am type a, but there was no, I had to cover myself with information, understand what was happening and then let it happen. Like, I can't, it's like, I don't, I was telling somebody the other day, I don't really know why they call it pushing. There's no pushing. The no. baby is leaving. The baby is exiting. That's what's happening.
0: Well, and- we talked, we were texting about, um if everybody's listening to Invisibility, I hope you are, the new emotion that they discovered. I think that's what you feel when you're giving birth without any medication. Oh, and I meant to say too,
1: the fascinating part about invisibility too, is that, that who were they? The eye who had the feeling? Mm -hmm. Is that how you pronounce
0: them? They're in our book club book this week. He talks about them in our book club book, (gasps) the righteous mind, like
1: little crossover.
0: The, the new emotion they were talking about is this sense of, of kind of all the vibration in the world coming through you. And that's what it's like to give birth. Like you just have to surrender And then I remember feeling like the earth was just pulling me down in the middle of contractions. And it's really interesting. And it's just, I don't know, I I wish that we didn't avoid those kinds of experiences. That's the most alive I'll ever be.
1: Yeah, because you have to surf. It's like a wave. You got to surf. You try to fight a wave, you drown. That's right. You know what I mean? Like, and that's the thing about life is life is full of waves and we are not talking about Mitch McConnell and the healthcare bill at all anymore, clearly. But, you know, I just think that that it, healthcare, the reason we always end up in these spaces when we talk about healthcare legislation is because the nuanced take is that let no matter what the legislation is, Obamacare didn't fix healthcare. Nothing's going to fix it because we have to think differently about health care before any law we pass is going to get close to touching the situation because our system is broken. And the way we think about that system and the way we think about care and the way we think about our bodies is messed
0: up. And I do think that the Johns probably miss some of those angles in the so drafting you think, process.
1: Uh, You think? I mean, when that Comer article from the Post came out, And he was talking about how the guy came up with this medication and he was like, I mean, I just realized how lucky I am to be born healthy. That's your takeaway, friend. Like, no. First of all, if that's the first time you're thinking that we need to have another conversation. And like, that's not the point. The point is not like you just need to, you know, hope you get the win the health lottery. Like, that's just not the issue or that we need to all like. Step up our personal responsibility, so we're all healthier. Like that, the answer to our healthier system is not everybody just magically gets healthier. I also think that we don't allow any space for people to have experiences outside of what we all define as healthy and normal, right? And which is problematic not just to people with chronic conditions, although that is hugely problematic to them, but it's just it, it it's just busted. Particularly, I think for women. As you know, your hormones change and your body changes and you age and this idea of um what's normal and healthy is it's so just not
0: a reality in which any of us exist. No, I mean, we've decided that thin people are healthier than fat people, which mm-hmm. is very often not true. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we've made all these decisions to make it easy. And I think and to reinforce it <laughs> Mike, well, absolutely. And I think that we've made a lot of these decisions to reinforce Mike Pence's point that there is some kind of it's it's a sense of control, right? I can be good enough to beat fill in the blank, yeah. And some some things we can minimize our risk, right? But it is still just a big world, and we're going to have whatever experience. We're going to have in it. And we cannot, um, we cannot beat that.
1: But the good news is that most of it is temporary. You know, there's really no permanent condition in life. That's right. So that's the good news and that's empowering. And I just think that, uh, you know, with regards to sort of like, What's healthy and what's not. I think it's not only that we have these binary definitions of that. It's that we all act as if we're act as if we've figured this out on complete knowledge. And like we we know everything we need to know about the human body. So just use this information and make good choices, everybody, and live your personal responsibility. I mean, come on. Ten years from now, like in the 90s, they were giving drugs to pregnant women that we now know caused
0: pediatric cancer. So the 90s. I ain't that old and i think we haven't even scratched the surface of the connection of the brain to the body and no, what we abilities we have i mean there there's so much out there so we can fix we can make things better through a better healthcare system for sure but we cannot solve the human experience through a better healthcare system i meant to that Okay, so we're going to talk about, um, <laughs> I think we've already talked a little bit about what's in our mind outside of politics, but we'll uh, take that to maybe a lighter note in <laughs> meals today.
1: I don't have a lighter note. I'm only thinking about my phone that's at
0: the bottom of Kentucky Lake, along with my driver's license and my credit card. Talk to us about how it came to be that, let's be honest, some of your most important possessions on this earth are in the bottom of the lake. All my most important possessions. Okay.
1: Well, and the funny thing too is, okay, so it's been, I don't know what the weather is like where you are, but this weekend we have had weather sent from heaven. Yes. It's like high seventies. I mean, it's almost chilly at night. So my family and I went up to Kentucky Lake. And the funny thing is, is we were on the boats or a dock or a sailboat all day. And so as we are sitting here recording this this episode of Pantsy Politics, it feels like my bedroom is rocking. It's not rocking, but it sure feels that way. I love that feeling, actually. I love mm-hmm. that sensation of being on a boat all day. And then you lay in your bed like, I can still feel it. Uh, that would be a more pleasant sensation had not I been on a sailboat. So here's what happened when my phone went overboard. I had it in a waterproof case. It didn't float though. It sank like a stone. So I have the wallet case and I ordered another one. I'm committed. Brent called me out on Facebook. He's like, that wallet case didn't work out so well for you." And then I definitely opened a tab and bought a new case for the phone. I'm going to go get tomorrow because I just love my wallet case. It makes my life so much easier. And I've lost my credit card a lot fewer times because of that. Anyway, so we're on the sailboat it is a big, big sailboat, but we had like 10 kids, like six adults. It's crowded. Okay. And so Felix, this was Felix's nap time. So I had to sedate him with little PBS kids or else he was going to scream and cry and kick and try to get off the sailboat and drown. So sedating him with little PBS kids. He's about falling asleep. I'm on the back of the sailboat. The sailboat is sort of pitched over to the side as sailboats do when you're sailing. And he's asleep. And then one of my friend's children sort of moved around me. And I'm like, hold on, guys. And as I read, like, I'm like trying to shift to let them through phone overboard. I've never heard a sadder story. It's so sad. I floated for a moment. If I'd had my wits about me, I think I probably could have dropped Felix to the, he would have been fine. In fact, I did do that for a second when I turned around and looked for it. Like, put him down on the ground, jumped overboard, and Nicholas was like, yeah, or you could have been like run over for a boat or drown. It really wasn't worth it. I'm like, but it floated for a second. I probably could have grabbed it and got on back on the boat, no problem. I'm a strong swimmer. It's not the ocean. It's Kentucky Lake.
0: Let's all take a minute though and applaud Nicholas for reacting that way.
1: Oh yeah, he was cool. I mean, I needed a new phone anyway. It sucks that we won't be able to keep that phone, but that phone was like the battery was getting like super, super, super hot. So I probably wouldn't have been comfortable like letting my friend my kids use it as like the old phone anyway. I did lose about a week's worth of pictures, which is a bummer. But most of my really good ones I put on Instagram. I mean, like in the I've already got the new credit card on the way. I'm um, not surprising anyone. The Paducah DMV will take me probably four and a half minutes. So in the scheme of things, what I kept thinking is that that boat was uh, so many kids going so many different directions. We lost a phone, not a kid. That's all that matters. So it's fine. It's not fine. It's awful, but it's fine.
0: <laughs> it's a good perspective. Um, I haven't thought about much here besides Ellen turning to Because last Saturday, Ellen went from the easiest child that was ever created to being full on two. You need to download that PBS Kids app. I know. I have it. I have it. And she, I mean, she's still lovely and fun, but she screams a lot right now. She is extremely certain about what she does and does not want in any given moment. And it's been a little crazy. And we're also still kind of recovering from being gone um, on our trip for so long and work has been really busy, and so I had to pull together a birthday party this week. So we did it. It was fun. Everybody had a good time. One thing I wanted to mention, and I would I would love to hear creative solutions on this, I had a very small birthday party for Ellen this year because I cannot with the gifts – and we've uh, tried a bunch of different ways to say to care. people, don't they bring don't gifts. Care. They don't care. They're bringing the gifts and it's lovely and I appreciate it. I want your and gifts. They, the girls always get really nice stuff. We don't need stuff. No. We just, we're stuffed. Man, I just read here. this thing
1: about minimalist toys. My kids are about to get a cold wake up call tomorrow when they come home and everything's gone because this woman sold me on it what have you done? Have you cleaned it out?
0: Have you cleaned things no, out? She
1: was just talking about like, she's really big on, they need to be open toys, not closed toys. So close yeah. the kid has to provide about 80% of the creativity. And we have a lot of those things. They play with them anyway. Like I've already got my eyes on a lot, of, but the problem is every time I've tried to get rid of the closed toys, they've been with me, but guess what? I might not do it that way. They might come home tomorrow. They weren't, they're not even going to miss them. You know what I mean? Like I get rid of a bunch of this stuff. They're not even going to notice. And I'm pretty hardcore about it anyway, but like, there's there's room to, to take away some more stuff,
0: and I'm thinking it might happen. We're very hardcore about that, too, and yet we are still drowning and stuff. And so I want to have these parties and celebrate with people. I just want them to truly show up and not bring something or bring a donation for a charity, but but not anything for my child. And we're very you, far from that. I tell you, I did one time
1: that I really loved. I, Griffin's first birthday, because I didn't want a bunch of one-year-old toys that would then be crap, and I knew that would probably be the biggest – like, that's a high attendance party – and so I asked everybody to bring their favorite toy from childhood.
0: And That's that awesome.
1: fun. Yeah, we got like Lincoln logs that they still play with and um, the other Tinker toys and like a bunch of really cool
0: stuff. We've done just books. I feel like people usually respect it when you say, please bring books. But man, I've got a lot of books. Yeah, we have got a lot a of books now too. Kids books. We did craft supplies one year for Jane. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah, and that was good, but I mean, we're we're just kind of full up on everything, and I feel like it's out of control. But Ellen had a lot of fun. Um, we did Sesame Street theme. Our listener Maggie asked me to put everything from her party on our Patreon page so that she can replicate it, and I'm figuring out how to do that because I made these cute little things in Canva for it. That I mean, it was. It was very low key. It was not a Pinterest party. You love but Canva. It was fun. I I do love Canva, and um, so I'm gonna try to do that. So if you have a Sesame Street kind of kid in your life, hopefully I can be helpful. I have to not you. done a Sesame Street party. And Amos, I don't know how I
1: how I did that. I managed that. I usually don't do. Probably because they got older, I knew I'd be doing so many character parties that I did what I wanted to, and they didn't have much control over it. Uh So I think a two year old Griffin's two year old. I did a a county fair for Amos's that was super cute. Felix just turned two in February. I don't even remember what his party was. As I said, it was not even that long ago. Wait, Sometime. it's coming back to me. It was, Oh, it was the story of Felix. It was a book theme. Cause I had not done a book theme, which is sort of shocking. Cause I, man, I love books. So I had saved all these, like, um, the paper, the, cut the Jack's, the paper, what are they called? The paper sleeves on the outside of the books. Oh, book jackets. Book jackets. I saved those and turned those into a bunch of stuff. That was really fun. And then uh, Griffin's second birthday, I think, was the Play Doh party, which was pretty awesome. I, lo- I used to get really into the birthday parties, and now I'm like, who
0: wants to go to Chuck E. Cheese? Yeah, this was having a summer birthday is life changing versus oh, poor so Jane, who's in fun. January. It's just yeah. much easier. But so we're, this was like, come play on the playset and in the baby pool and we'll have hamburgers and hot dogs. And we'll oh, have yeah, some county characters fair. Everywhere. I even had a petting zoo. My nice. goats. It was so That's fun. intense. <laughs> they were cute too. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. If you do not feel called to or cannot financially support the podcast and you want to do something to support us, Uh, We would really appreciate you leaving us a review on the Apple podcast player. We will be back with you on Friday for an episode of The Briefcase. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.